Guys, let's turn on our Bibles, Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8. This is actually one of the most uh, influential, powerful, weighty chapters in the entire Bible. We're going to spend some, uh, quite a bit of time in it, Romans chapter 8. The title of the message is, The Radical Revolution of Being in Christ. The Radical Revolution of Being in Christ, Romans chapter 8. So let me just tell you what our mornings look like typically. Stephanie and I wake up, we pray, and then start coffee. Coffee is very important to our devotion and Bible reading, okay? Okay, so, and then generally, 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 not all the time, there's these sighs that go on. Stephanie's in another room, I'm in a particular room, she's in another room, we're having her devotions, and then it just transitions to like these sighs, and just like, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. You can hear that. It's not uncommon. Oh my, I can't believe it. And it's like, and then sometimes I'll say, well, Stephanie, are you okay? She says, I'm just reading the news. That's why, you know, just these sighs and these groans. And, you know, I read a headline this week. Wells Fargo, Target, Hulu Packard, Citibank are sponsoring an event in Boise, Idaho that will feature child drag performers. And the description says, you've watched the queens and kings. Now it's time to see the kids, Right. So you read that and you're like, oh my goodness gracious, it makes you want to throw up. There's like sighing, right? There's like groaning and, and, and this is just nothing short. And let me just be up front here, right? That is demonic. That's just demonic. So why am I mentioning that? Hey, welcome if you're here for the first time, all right? But th there's a reason, okay? Because smack dab... Right here in Romans chapter 8, I, I want you to see this. It's actually Paul identifies groanings that are taking place. Like we're talking about the revolutionary work of Jesus Christ and what it is to be in Christ. I mean, it's a radical revolutionary work. In the heart of Romans 8, which is, I mentioned earlier, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, starts with no condemnation, ends with no separation in Christ, uh, you have Paul identifying groanings. Like in verse 22, just jump down there real quick. It says, for the whole creation groans and, what's the next word, you guys? Labors with birth pangs together until now. These are not death pangs. These are birth pangs. What? So it's like, you know, in the morning, read some headlines. and stuff. I was like, oh my goodness, you're sighing. It's to believe you're groaning. Actually, he mentions Christians groan. It's like, man, something's not right. Like all of creation, there's a deep dislocation. There's a lack of harmony and shalom and wholeness. And this is intensifying today, and we're experiencing it. As the world's more interdependent, stakes are only getting higher, and it's like we're more connected. And, and, and I just like the sighing and the groaning is intensifying. It's just interesting that, that Paul mentions groanings. Creation is groaning. It's like dislocation. Christians actually, check it out, verse 23, also groaning, not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. And then in verse 26, he says, likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with, what's the next word, you guys? Groanings which cannot be uttered. Wait, what, what, what is he saying? All of creation is eagerly 
is eagerly awaiting the revealing, actually, of the sons of God. What, what does that mean? Oh, the Lord has begun a work in us. And, and, he, and he's not like completed it in the sense of it demonstrating itself. He com completed it on the cross, but we're in process. One day, we're going to be glorified. And one day, we're going to rule and reign on planet Earth. And when he says here in verse 18... For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. In other words, look, we're talking about the impact of Jesus Christ. We're talking about the revolutionary impact of Christ. It's like, here's the point. The idea is, and we have it up on the screen, is that the groanings that we're all feeling and experiencing are actually not death pangs. They're birth pangs of the Spirit in us. And it's pointing to the guaranteed coming reign of Jesus Christ. Now, that's good news. That is really good news. So groaning, yeah, for believers, creation is groaning. And what, what is the groaning looking for? The completed work of Jesus in our bodies, glorified and reigning with him. And every believer has had a foretaste of this. It's like we know, we've had a taste of this glory, and we, we know how good the Lord is. Can I hear a big amen to that? It's one of the reasons why we feel like throwing up when we read the news. It's like, oh, man, wow, that, that's disturbing. And it's disturbing because we have this, like, look at this verse up here. In Corinthians, it says, well, as it is written, even eye has not seen nor ear has heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. So you talk about a radical revolution and the radical transformation that takes place in a believer's life. I mean, I just want to hit a bullseye here in Romans 8. All of creation actually is groaning for the completed work in Christ. Glorified bodies, we rule and reign with him on planet earth. That's what the Bible teaches. Hey, listen, Chrysostom who a great leader in the third century was actually brought before the Roman emperor and he was threatened with banishment unless he renounced Jesus. And, and he responded, you cannot banish me because like my father owns the world, okay? And then the emperor said, you know, we'll slay you. He says, you can't actually slay me because my, my life is secure in Christ. And then, he, and then he said, well, like, we'll take away your treasures. He said, my, my treasures are actually in heaven. What we do for God actually lasts forever. He can't take them away. Then we'll drive you away from your friends. Jesus Christ will never leave me nor forsake me. And then what he said to the emperor, he looked the emperor right in the eyes and said, I defy you. Now that's a Christian right there. That, that's someone that has security. That's someone that has courage. That's someone that has right course in their life. No, it's like I defy you. Here, here's the thing that's happening today is the world is being shaken. You have separation between wheat and chaff. And it's the first time, unfortunately, in post-Christian, actually, excuse me, in, in America, that we are post-Christian. And yet, I've pastored long enough. And because, uh, you know, since I was 20 years of age, that when I would read surveys and other pastors as well, and we're talking even 25, 30 years ago, when you would read like, 75% of the people in America claim to be born again. We're always kind of scratching our heads. But the reality is, is like the genuine believer, just a flat out fact, is being revealed today. You don't want to allow those who do not demonstrate the fruit of transformation in Jesus Christ 
to pull down the exceptionalism of what it is to be in Jesus. And, and, and I don't want to like be unpleasant when I say this, but it's like, you know, not everybody that goes to church is a Christian. I mean, I'm really glad that you're here and I'm not vibing anybody. I'm just saying. It's like you can stand in a garage, it doesn't make you a car, right? So it's like, all, all I'm simply saying is, all I'm simply saying is, look, what, when Christ comes into our life, there's a radical revolution that takes place in transformation. The question is, are we renewed in believing it? Because when we believe it, it impacts our mentality and our outlook and our sense of well-being. So what does this revolution look like? Here we are, you know, Romans 8. Here's what we're going to do, you guys. There's so much here. I'm going to take a needle and a thread, and I'm going to tie some components together. This is going to be the first study in Romans. We're going to be in here for quite some time, but I'm just going to tie three key ideas, beginning which with verse 1, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, where Paul writes, Therefore, now there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's good news. There is therefore now no condemnation. In other words, judgment or punishment. Now there's conviction in Christ. You know, conviction is being drawn to the Lord. Condemnation is actually being driven from the Lord, where there's a lack of confidence, sins forgiven, right standing before God. So, in fact, I put this in your, in your notes um, for home groups, the difference between condemnation and conviction. Conviction is really good. Conviction draws us to the Lord. Condemnation uh, actually pushes us away, drives us from the Lord. There's no condemnation. Why is that? Well, I mean, it raises the question, how does a perfectly just God, the moral governor of the universe, make unjust men just? And, and the answer is, he pays the debt of sin himself. It's like he sent his only son, right, who became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Jesus died in our place. He is Savior. Can I hear another amen to that? By his stripes, we are healed. Okay, so when the Father looks upon us, he sees us in his Son. If you just look here in verse 3, check it out, verse 3, he says, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sinning his own son. In the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's a mouthful there. But the point is, is that God sent his son in the likeness of men. Not, he was not sinful, he was sinless. God became a man. It's like man did not become a God. That, that, that's crazy. That's, you know, you have Jewish friends who will say, you know, I just don't believe that Jesus is the son of God because the idea is that, you know, man can't become a God. Of course man can't become a God. And the, the reality is, is that God became a man. And so and what he did was it's like, okay, you have, you, have this, you have this judgment. You have the world under judgment, misaligned with God. He takes the punishment himself, Right? The context is Romans 7, obviously, and we just looked a little bit of it last week. And, and we're told that, look, in Christ we're already justified, big idea, which means declared righteous. 
we've received grace through faith. You know, in other words, right standing with God is a gift. I receive it by faith. But still we're all flawed by nature. And it's like the longer you walk with Jesus, the more you see actually yourself for who you really are. And, and you see the, the depth that there is for help outside of yourself. It's like, you know, when I was 16, man, I needed Jesus Christ. But, like, I'm 58, and I still really need him, like, in a big way. I'm still in process. I'm, st I'm still learning things about myself. I didn't know about myself. I need the Lord's help in my life. So it's, it's like, in some ways, you could say, you know, as you grow in the Lord, as you walk with him, actually you realize, whoa, man, the depth of the breakdown of my nature and how much I need forgiveness. And thank God he paid it all already. You know, Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife, tells this story that CBS came to interview him and um, they brought these big lights in the living room. So when they turned on the lights, she looked up and she was so embarrassed. All these cobwebs are in the living room. She was like, oi vey, right? I can't believe it. So it's like, and that's the idea. It's like as we get closer, the, the light is more apparent and reveals who we are. The good news is the Lord has already covered us. It's like, you know, sin is, is two things. One, sin is just falling short. You know, I mentioned this, like a lot of times when I sin, it's a, it's a matter of weakness. To be, I'm fully responsible for it, but it's a matter of weakness. As if I lack a sensitivity to my precious bride or response or listening or being, under, it's, it's sometimes, I, I don't know, I, I, take, I take responsibility for it, but it's not like I'm trying to sin. It's like I just fall short. Now, trespasses is intentional crossing the line. But the point is, is that in Christ, he already paid it all. No condemnation. It's like I have this friend in, in Israel, and he's a very successful businessman. And I was there, and, and I just asked if he'd be so kind to help communicate for me. I, I was trying to get a reservation somewhere, and, and, and he just, just, can you just... And look, I'll pay for it and everything. Could you just help me? And so he texted me back and he says, okay, it's all done. And he says, it's in my name. So I'm thinking, okay, great. I told Stephanie and the, and the girls, okay, you got the, it's in his name. So I expect to show up and I'm going to give my friend's name and then I'm going to pay for it. But then I learn like to be in his name, it's oh, really a good thing, right? Because everything is covered. I didn't know. It. I said, no, no, I want to pay for it. No, no. It's like, if you're like in his name, it's covered. And to be in Jesus, hey, there's no condemnation. We have his righteousness. That's good news. That's really good news. Hey, the transition here uh, we need to look at from condemnation is then from that we learn that, man, we become a child of God. And there's a running start here. Look with me, please, in verse 9. It says, but... You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwelt in you. So the, the Spirit of God, by the way, is a person. It's not a power. It's not a vibe. It's a real person. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, the power of sin. But the Spirit is, is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit 
who dwells in you. Big emphasis on the Holy Spirit here. We're going to be unpacking this in the weeks to come. But, you know, the revolutionary work of Jesus Christ is you actually have God himself indwelling us. We know that as believers. So this is something that transcends like something merely psychological or philosophical. To the extent like if you don't have his spirit, you're not a child of God. You're not a son. You have no you know, assurance that you're in right standing with God. Now please, a lot of here, look at verse 15. We, we did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but we received the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father, the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, we're going to unpack this. But, you know, someone contacted me this, this week and asked me my view on, uh, and, and I'm glad they did, okay? I wasn't quite sure what the question was, but they asked me my view on LGBTQ. And um, so I thought, okay, well, I wasn't quite sure what they were asking, perfectly honestly, but I want to make a connection here. And so I just decided to answer by saying, well, let me just tell you, like, I'll, I'll just paraphrase it. Like, look, the reality is we're all, we're all broken. And um, Jesus said, unless you're born of the Spirit, you will neither see nor enter into the kingdom of heaven. Good people don't get to heaven, only forgiven people do. And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except to be through me. And we all need Christ, and we all need to turn to him. The, the answer to the brokenness of man is Jesus, and that is the only answer, right? Okay. So the, so the new creation that Jesus is accomplishing is a work of his spirit and what he's accomplished. The new creation is not the result of mutilation, but transformation. So let me say it again. It's not like you don't, you don't go mutilate your body. That's not the key to the transformation that the Lord has purpose for us. It's, it's a work of his, of his spirit, right? It's Christ in us, transformed. It's like we all need Jesus. We're all at equal footing. We all need to turn to him, repent of our sins, embrace Christ as our Lord and Savior. New creation will not be the result of transhumanism. The, the new creation is the result of being born again, of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is Savior and there's no other. Well, well, the, the Spirit gives us new identity. This is what he's saying here. And if you look at verse, basically verse 15, the Spirit is not the bondage again to fear. It's a loaded idea here. Let, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a relationship where you feel like you're always walking on eggshells? I mean, that's kind of like a, speaks of a performance-based relationship. You need to perform for there to be harmony and favor. And if you're not performing and rightly aligning, then it's like, oh man, the relationship is a real challenge. Like if Paul was here, this idea that, you know, we've received the spirit of adoption and we cry, Abba, you know, this is not the spirit of fear, like Look, you got to understand, like, he, he's writing to Rome. 30% of the Roman Empire were slaves. So to, to be in a slave relationship is not, like, the most harmonious relationship. You are working for your favor. You're always under the gun. There's just like, it's, it's, it's not, it's like, it's just fear, 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 fear. It's like, wait, relationship with God, the basis of it is not a performance 
faith-based, actually, identity, where I have to, like, sweat out some good works, then I have confidence that the Lord loves me and he's going to be favorable towards me. Because to have such thinking, it's a deadly trap when it comes to relationship with God. A performance-based relationship is the belief that if I make the right effort, my expectations in life will be met. So, so in other words, if I'm a moralist, and it's like if I do the right thing, then God is obligated to me. I have expectation of certain things transpiring in my life. If my expectations are not being met in a performance-based mentality, then I must not be meeting the standard. And it's like, man, the standard, like what standard are we talking about? I mean, this, well, there is only like one standard of righteousness. That's God's standard. And we all fall short of that. I mean, we don't even keep our own standards. So I, so I end up, so in a performance-based mentality, if I'm thinking like, man, I got to perform to get favor and perform to be blessed, it's like, man, I, I never measure up. And, and, and the catch-22 is I end up hating myself and I end up even hating God on the false pretense that he, by his will, which is not true, that it was a performance-based identity in the first place. And I hope you understood what I just said. You know, I just, remember, you remember that? How many of you remember the first Rocky movie? This is going to date us. I want to say, remember that? Okay, so like Adrian asks Rocky the question, you know, why do you want to go the distance? He says, you know, he's going to go up against like the number one boxer in the world and he's just, he's a kind of an amateur guy from Philly. And it's like, he wants to go the distance. He doesn't care if he's just blood. He just wants to go the distance. And, and his answer was, look, I, I need to go to the distance because to know that I'm not a bum. So it's like it has so much to do with the core sense of identity in my life. And it's like I, I have to go. I'm just going to give. I just got to keep standing. I don't care if I win. I have to go to the distance because if I don't go to the distance, I'm just a stinking bomb, man. In the Chariots of Fire, one of the main characters explains why he works so hard at running the 100-yard dash or the Olympics. And he says uh, that when the race begins, he said, quote, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. Listen, you can spot individuals who have lived most of their life with this type of performance-based mentality. By the way, this is our culture, performance-based mentality. It's like, but it's not the basis of our relationship with Jesus Christ. He, he, like he paid it all for us, and he's given us his righteousness. And it's like I have security as a, as a son. You know, like the basis of my relationship with the Father's unconditional love because I'm in Christ. And it's like, well, why do you obey him, you know, Greg Denham? Oh, as a, out of a demonstration of my love for him. But it's like I don't obey him to say, okay, well, if I obey him, then I'm going to earn some favor and blessing. It's not a performance-based reality. I respond to his love. I do so as a demonstration of my worship. Jesus said, if you love me, you know, then obey me. It's like a worship thing. But here's the thing, like performance-based mentality, it's insidious. It's like we got to cut it out. It's just, it's just, it just makes you really hypercritical of other people. You see someone, you know, has some success, and it's like, well, they're not as moral as me. And so the temptation is to spend a lot of time cutting them down. I just got to find chinks in their armor to cut them down to make myself feel better about who I am, to justify my own existence. I mean, in Acts 27, remember when Paul was bit by a deadly snake? And uh, it revealed, actually, 
the worldview of the natives who saw through a lens, kind of a karma theology. So when Paul was like picking up sticks trying to help people after the shipwreck on Malta, it's like this deadly ass grasped to his hand and then he just flung it off and the natives are watching this and they're just thinking, oh, you know, that guy's, that guy's like, he's been arrested, he's on his way to Rome. He must be a murderer. Oh, you know, oh, you know what? He, um, he survived a shipwreck, but he can't survive his past and it's catching up with him. You see that snake? He's a dead man. Watch him. He's going he's gonna, to, he's, they're just watching. He's, he's going to drop dead in event. It's like, you know, Paul just shook the snake off and kept moving forward. That's this karma theology, like, you know, bad things happen to bad people, you know, and, and things. So, did I say that right? Yeah, okay, yeah. So, it's like, wait, wait, wait. Like, no, in Christ, it's like, the, the thing is, is that we in, are in him, forgiven, loved, favored, empowered, and it's not a performance-based reality, as I've been trying to say. But let me just ask you, do you view hardship? When there's hardship in your life, do you view it as punishment? Because if so, here's good news, that's a lie. There, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Remember, enough suffering. It's like, what do you mean enough? Like Jesus suffered for us. He already suffered. He already paid it all. And do you have this assurance? It's a, it's a divine work of the Spirit. That's what he says in verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In Jewish law, a matter was established by two or three witnesses. So you have the witness of God's Spirit to our spirit. It's like, well, like, well the Bible says we're spirit, soul, and body. I remember like as a 20-year-old intern at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa calling Chuck Smith, which was like really rare to like to call him in his office. But I just like, I don't know what I was thinking. But I, you know, I had this Bible question in Genesis, like this trying to work through like, you know, what died in the garden and things. And he was answering the spirit of man. I mean, sin affected the body, but when Adam and Eve turned against God, it's like the, their spirit died. Like think of your spirit as like as, you know, Antenna, this, this antenna that is able to receive information, communicate information. And then when you come to Christ, your antenna was broken in relationship with God, but now it's made alive. And so his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And this brings a deep security. It's married to the hip. A lot here of being adopted. Because look at the passage here, you guys. I love this. Verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit again, a bondage, again, to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Adoption. Um, through a Roman lens. Jewish culture you, you have the firstborn essentially getting the majority of the inheritance. In Roman culture, even though, let's say, you had a bunch of biological sons, they may not be. They may not be like the, 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 the first, you know, the, you obviously have one firstborn biologically, but it's like you could actually choose someone else, some other male, to, to be adopted and to receive whatever inheritance you want to give. 
They, 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 like the, they could be the favored one. And it may not be biological, right? The, the, the idea is, is that, hey, the Lord has chosen us. He's chosen us. You know, I, my, if my mother was here, I love her so much, and um, she, she would tell you the story, like when I was apparently like two or three, I don't know, I fell down, she came over, she held me, and apparently she, she was, at the end of the day, and she was tired, and she was crying a little bit, and I looked up at her, and I said, you love me best of all, don't you? I mean, that's the thing. And I actually still believe that, you know what I mean? I mean, to be honest with you, I whisper in her ear, you don't have to tell me, uh, but... I know you'll give me a wink in the kingdom, yeah? But I mean, it's like, it's nice to be the chosen one, right? Chosen. Hey, you're chosen. You're chosen by God. You've, you've been adopted. Think of it through a Roman lens, not Jewish lens here. That's a good thing. And it comes with this extraordinary inheritance. I mean, inheritance, the value of it, it's determined by the one giving it, right? I just remember when we first wrote our will out. I mean, Stephanie and I, I don't even know if we were like 27 or we were going on some trip and, and we had two children and I'm just like, we didn't have a lot. I'm like writing, Greg, I give you my blue Bible. He's like three years old. And, you know, Sarah, give me my Spurgeon sermons. That's about it, man. That's about it, right? But to get an inheritance from God who owns everything, extraordinary. Uh, the inheritance of Christians from the creator, sustainer, and owner of the universe. And this idea that we are joint heirs of Christ. Look at verse 17. And if children then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, and indeed we suffer with them, that we may also be glorified together. I mean, there's a lot there, and I'm moving fast, and thanks for your patience. This idea we're joint heirs with Jesus, I prefer even not to start to try to explain it now. We'll have to come back to that. That, that. That's huge. I mean, Jesus said, speaking to the Father and the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. The Bible says actually that we sit on the throne. We're not, we don't become a God by any stretch of the imagination. That's what the cult teaches. It's not true. We're, Jesus owns everything we share in the assets of the king forever. We'll talk further about this in the weeks to come. But the point is, and we have it up on the screen, point two, hey, look, good news, no condemnation. Christ means Jesus already paid the debt of our sin. And now we're children of God with a guaranteed, guaranteed uh, inheritance. There you go. That's right. Now watch this, you guys. Jump down to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8.28. So sorry. Romans 8.28. It says, just make this, I kind of like just bring this thread here to verse 28. And we know, we know that all things work together for the good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We want to pause there. Just, I mean, wait a second. If, if we get the condemnation understanding right, yeah, condemnation leads now to, a, to being a child of God, awesome, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. We can understand then this radical revolution and have confidence in this verse. I mean, we know, therefore, all things, verse 28, all things work together for the good to those who love God 
and to those who are called according to his purpose. Look at verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he predestined, which means there's a plan in place, to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. We just begin to look at this. But the, the comfort and encouragement, and this is the third point, is the idea that in life what the enemy intends for evil, the Lord's going to turn around for the highest good in our life. And, and the question is like, if you ask, well, what actually is good? All things work together for the good. I mean, there's lots of things that are good. Um, and, and I would say, and I've used this illustration before, but there's like lower shelf good and there's higher shelf good. Like my friend Greg Laurie tells the story of him take, taking his son, Christopher, to the toy store. And he's like, come on, Christopher, you want a, you want a toy? And it's like, you can pick a toy. So he gets to the toy store, and Christopher, I don't know, like five, six years of age, he's picking toys from the lower shelf. Well, his dad, his dad wants a killer toy too, I think, right? He's looking at the more expensive toys in the top. But, but it's like, no, his son is happy, he just picks a little toy. I don't know, little Hot Wheelers, something like, you know, but it's, but Greg is saying, you know, Christopher, look, look higher. It's like, I mean, I mean, the, the better ones, oh, that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with my Hot Wheel. And so, anyways, Greg ends up like buying the higher shelf toys, you know, and takes it home. And, and he tells the story that it, it got to the point where he's like, hey, do you want to go to the toy store? And Christopher said, yeah, dad, and, and you choose the toy, right? Because you choose the higher shelf toys. The really good ones. So, so what is good? There's so many good things the Lord has blessed us with. But what is, what is the highest good? I mean, it's actually here in this, this passage. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Joseph, remember? that, And, and we talked about how Joseph is this poster child, actually. For, for upper shelf good. For the highest good. It's like the Lord's after the highest good in our life. And, and, and if you're new to the Bible... Um, this is going to summarize Joseph's life just real quick. And I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. But if Joseph's brother never sell him to the Midianites, Joseph never goes to Egypt, right? And if Joseph never goes to Egypt, he's never sold to Potiphar. If he's never sold to Potiphar, Potiphar's wife never falsely accuses him of rape. If Potiphar's wife never accuses him of rape, then he's never put in prison. And if he's never put in prison, he never meets the baker and the butler of Pharaoh. And if he never meets the baker and butler of Pharaoh, he never interprets their dreams. And if he never interprets their dreams, he never gets to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And if he never gets to interpret Pharaoh's dream, he never is made prime minister. And if he's never made prime minister, he's never wisely administrates for the severe famine coming upon the region. And if he never wisely administrates for the severe famine coming upon the region... Then his family back in Israel perishes from the famine. If his family back in Israel perishes from the famine, then the Messiah can't come. Because the Messiah can't come from a dead family. And if the Messiah can't come from, forth, then Jesus never came. And if Jesus never came, then you and I are dead in our sins, right? It's like, yeah, Joseph's life foreshadowed actually the person and work of Jesus. His life foreshadowed what the Lord wants to accomplish in our life because the Lord's conforming us into the image of Jesus. 
You say, what are you, what are you talking about? Well, Joseph was betrayed. I mean, like there's failing in relationships, right? But this was a betrayal. This was an intentional wounding. This is like his brothers putting him in headlocks and like, you know, throwing him in a pit, selling him to slavery. So the betrayed one ends up becoming one of the chief servants in the empire at that time in Egypt. He's like the prince of Egypt, and he ends up being in a position where he is the savior of Egypt with his wise administration and savior of the world and savior of Israel. And there's a critical juncture. The critical juncture was when his brothers ended up in Egypt, they, they just long forgot uh, Joseph. They didn't even think that he was alive. Wouldn't even recognize him. Now he has, he's just all the Egyptian garb, just probably looking really killer in my opinion. But anyways, there he is, eyes is up. They didn't even recognize him. Joseph's is in a position, should I forgive them? Because if he doesn't forgive them, they're dead. It's like if he, if he doesn't bridge here, if he's not intentional, it's like a lot of pain. And, so, and he ends up saying ultimately like what the enemy basically intended for evil in a sense. The Lord turned around for the good. Here, here's my point, and it's point number four, and that is that God transforms our lives, you guys, to be more like Jesus. Here's why. Because he wants to demonstrate radical love and forgiveness in and through our lives. He wants to use us to be a part of the solution of breaking destructive cycles, beginning with your family. It's like, listen, not every relationship is going to be harmonious, but we are to do what we can to be at peace with all men. We are to forgive. We're to let go. Remember, one of the reasons why the Lord wants us to forgive is because he doesn't want us under the injury of the injustice. He doesn't want us like that, that pain and that bitterness morphing and consuming us. One of the reasons I'm convinced why Jesus said, love your enemies, you know, do good to those who use you and despitefully exploit you and things, is because he doesn't want us informed by bitterness and hatred. If, you, if, you, if that's the case, it just destroys us. It destroys our relationships. It destroys a lot of things. But the point is, is that, look, the highest good in our life that the Father is after is transforming us more like Jesus. Can you see how beautifully, how beautifully the Lord works in Christ? The transformation and revolution is radical. One of the reasons why the Lord has us here on planet Earth is to be that Joseph, starting in your own home, your neighborhood, church, friends. That's why he has us here. You know, I read a story about a dad who was estranged from his son and um, hadn't seen him for years. They had an argument. He ran away. So he took out, a, took out an ad in a local newspaper, and he just said, Paco, I love you. All is forgiven. Meet me at the courthouse, 9 a.m. Saturday. Dad shows up, 9 a.m. Saturday. There's 300 young men named Paco. The point is, is that, look, we, we, we need to be that dad, right, reaching out. We need to be those bridge builders. The flip side to all of this is, look, no condemnation in Christ. It's heavy duty, but someone who's not in Christ. Jesus said one is already under judgment. Just know this. He paid it all on the cross. He loves you, but he loves you enough 
not to leave you the way you are. What could be better than the revolutionary work of being in Jesus Christ? Can I hear an amen to that? Let's pray, Lord, thank you for you. We love you. And, and I just want to pray for the church family. Let's not pack up yet, guys. Let's just keep ours here. Listen, for, for all of us, Lord, I pray as we're going through like this chapter, it would just be so renewing and revolutionary. And help us like have, you know, just fresh eyes on this and, and sensitive, receptive hearts to step into the truth, the truth that sets us free. And Lord, I want to pray that if there's anyone here that has yet to embrace you as Lord and Savior, help them even right now to see that 2,000 years ago, you hung, bled, gave your life for them on the cross. You died in their place. It's like you, you, know, you, you, you stepped out in traffic and rescued them, took the hit. I mean, you took the hit for them. You bore their sin and their shame and you want to bring healing and wholeness and forgiveness. And, and Lord, of course, you know, as we well know, that it's, it's not that we're reaching up to you. You actually initiated all of this. You're reaching out to us first. We love you because you first loved us. And, and so I just pray, Lord, for anyone here, whether they're 15 years of age or 55 or 85 years of age, one is not too young and one is not too old to be right with you. And I ask, Lord, would you help those who are in a place of, of decision to make a right decision for you? You say, well, Greg, what are you even talking about? Number one, listen, we all need help. We, we were not made to manage our own life. We were made for relationship with God. And God has revealed himself to us. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And what a beautiful Father there is. We've seen his face in his Son who gives his life. Jesus said, not a greater love does a man have than he would lay his life down for his friends. Jesus laid his life down for us. And the Bible says he was treated as if he committed every stinking sin in human history. Man, let's go to sit on that for a little bit, man. By his stripes, we are healed. We need, we need him. We need forgiveness. We need forgiveness. Number two, Jesus said that there's a choice that we face. God's not going to force himself on us. He said there's a broad way that leads to destruction, and many go that way, a narrow way that leads to eternal life, and few be that find it. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So it's like he wants at the crossroads, follow Jesus. And this would mean repentance. I mean, this means repentance. Listen, I want to press on this a little bit. Someone can, um, you know, just, just, someone can go to church. Someone can even be baptized. Someone can even have some, some, some changes morally in their life. But there has not been a conviction of actually sin that, that is defying God. And it's like, man, I need to turn from a self-centered life and embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's like, man, I, I need to be under new management. And that's a moment in time, but it's also a process of a lifetime. It takes place, believing, turning to him, but also, yeah, it's like we're all under construction. None of us are perfect. 
And we need to receive him. Those who call upon the Lord shall be saved, the Bible says. He stands at the door and knocks. And if I would hear his voice and open the door uh, to Christ, he will come in. So listen, would you like to say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, come into my life. I turn from my sin. Help me. I turn to you. And I receive you as my Lord and Savior. That's a beautiful thing. That's a really beautiful thing. And it's a door that the Lord will take advantage of and seize and step into your life. And if you would like to step into this, receive Christ, leave here knowing your sins are forgiven. If you were to die, you'd go to heaven. That's a beautiful thing. Pray with me at this time. And I'm going to just lead you in a word of prayer. And this is a prayer of asking the Lord to forgive you and come into your life. Pray with me. And church family, if you'd like to join, that'd be great. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I call upon you now to be my Savior and Lord. Thank you for dying for me, paying the debt of my sin. I know I'm a sinner, but I know you're a great Savior. Lord, forgive me of my sins. Lord, come into my life and fill me with the life of God. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for coming into my life making me your child both now and forever. Teach me now to follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.